Hello, and welcome to Faculty Feed with me, Dr. Jerry Rabelais, Associate Vice President for Health Science Center Faculty Development at the University of Louisville. With me are my co-hosts, Dr. Stacy Sainer, Director of HSC Faculty Development, and Dr. Laura Weingartner, Director of Research for Faculty Health Professions Education. Once a week, we're going to come together to use this podcast to bring faculty development content to feed your hunger and satisfy your appetite so you can magnify your impact as an educator, clinician, researcher, and academic leader. Welcome everyone to Faculty Feed. Today, we are so delighted to have with us a brand new faculty member in the School of Medicine, Dr. Chris Seals. He has joined us from Michigan State University, where he obtained a PhD in education psychology and educational technology. He also has a master's in education and counseling psychology. And guess what? UofL graduate, bachelor's degree 2008. He has come home. And so he just recently returned to us starting on March 1st, joined the dean's office at the School of Medicine in faculty affairs. He is an assistant dean for faculty affairs and advancement. Chris, welcome to Faculty Feed. Hey, I'm glad to be here. It's good to have you. So tell us what attracted you to come back to UofL and about the roles you'll be playing in this assistant dean job. Let's talk about the first thing, which is most important. Outside of this role, it's family. Oh, My family's okay. in Kentucky. I'm from Kentucky. Okay. I'm a Lexington kid, as you already mentioned. Louisville, um, University of Louisville is where I got my bachelor's degree. Um, family's here. Plus, I have two little ones. Ah. A three-year-old and a one-year-old, both oh, girls. That's little. You know, when I moved here, I had a three-year-old and a one-year-old. Yeah. And look what happened to me. <laughs> this, this is you 35 years from now. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good trajectory for me. Okay, so three-year-old, one-year-old, family's here. And when raising kids that young and that close in age... Yeah. It's nice to have grandma and granddad around. Yes. Both grandma and granddad. Oh my gosh, around. how lucky Absolutely. are you? Cousins around, <sighs> my brother around. Well, Lexington, so still close. That's very close. So that was a huge part. Now, of course, the job. As I was looking to come back, I was really thinking about, well, it's time for a career move. I spent some time searching and just trying to find what would fit me. This past four years, I've been an assistant professor, um, tenure track at the University of Illinois in the College of Veterinary Medicine. They asked me to be the coordinator of curriculum and assessment on top of being a professor. Obviously, you're doing your research. My research was focused on learning, motivation, especially how pedagogy from obviously faculty and instructors mm -hmm. impacts student motivation and mm -hmm. achievement. So in a nutshell, you know, our research can go. Of course, in that specific role of being a coordinator of curriculum and assessment, that was a lot of time I spent working with faculty, doing faculty development work, which in, right. over, overlaps with what you all do, but it was specifically in, specifically, um, in developing how to, write, how to write learning objectives, how to be better educators, being more involved with students, being more interactive with your, uh, making your PowerPoints more interactive, just anything that can make the learning experience more effective. And translates everywhere. Every kind of higher ed. Yes. Yeah. You can, do, you that can do that in medicine. You can do it in veterinary science. We can do it at the dental school, the nursing school. We got it everywhere. Bingo. Bingo. Which is how I can be at these different places. Now, the thing is, what I didn't realize is that having that job for the past four years really prepared me for this. And I've already seen that in a month, which is kind of amazing. So tell us about what your role is going to be as an assistant dean. I'm going to be working with graduate medical education, so that's the resident and fellow level. Then I'm going to be working with faculty, but I have to be concerned about the entire pipeline from really even from undergraduate medical education all the way up. Because the concern is if we want to get 
black and brown, underrepresented faculty here, we have to also pay attention to the ones that are currently here and make sure we're creating an environment where they actually want to stay. That's a huge component. So then we actually have to want to give them resources, show them that we want them to stay, create an environment where they don't feel um, ostracized or don't feel like they don't belong, et cetera. Well, I was gonna say, so you've only been here a month, mm -hmm. which is probably not, not enough time to do a complete assessment of UofL, but what have you found have been some of the driving factors that faculty leave? What I'm seeing is that some of the, if not a lot of the issues that we deal with here aren't uncommon. Yeah. We're dealing with, we can recruit black, brown, underrepresented um, faculty, but after a while, they, they may be gone. So I'm gonna give a little anecdote here. I have a buddy, will not say her name, because it's nobody's business, but, <laughs> but I have a buddy, and she is a representative of so many. She finished her PhD a couple years before me. She went to a Research One institution in the South. Nice school. She got a nice uh, package when she started. Um, everything seemed great on paper, but guess what? Only black woman in her department. Oh, yeah. um, one of few black people in the entire college. Yeah. And then her family was all the way in the Northeast area, New York, Pennsylvania, and whatnot. She goes there. It's not like grad school when you go to grad school yeah. and you have a cohort, and it's a little bit easier to make friends, right? So she's there, and everything looks great on paper, but she, she did what she could. She had support, and by support, again, financial support for right. being a starting junior faculty, but she was not connected. And if you don't have that connection to people, because at the end of the day, we're still people, right? That's right. <laughs> if you don't have that connection to people, especially people who look like you and can understand certain experiences that you have, it's going to be difficult. And after two years, at the end of, by the middle of the second year, she was already searching for a new job. Mm -hmm. And that's not uncommon. Yeah. And that happens here, and that happens other places. And I've been hearing that even before I went to school and started uh, by school, I mean, before I went and got my graduate degree and whatnot, even before then, I was kind of aware of this narrative. We actually have a, a Liam team that is working on this topic right now, and they are they're out of the College of Education, and they are looking at why some specific faculty have left the university in their school, in the College of Education. And so I'm really excited to see what they come up with, but it is, it's like this alarm going off when, when, when people leave, but it's, it's like, we gotta do something. Mm -hmm. Well, you have to do something before they leave, right? Yes. When they're mm -hmm. out the door, when they're already searching for a it's, job. It's too late. It's, yeah. It's too late. So, speaking of which, it's funny that you said that because I had a colleague, again, not gonna say their name either, <laughs> who actually came here after they finished their PhD and um, they're already gone. And that was just three or four years ago. Yeah. So that's, it's, like I said, it's, it's common. So when I even had my interview for this role, uh, what, so many months ago, one of the things, I, I broke it down to two things. I mean, I kind of previewed it a few seconds ago. I said, not only does there need to be professional support, obviously, but there needs to be some form of personal support. Yeah. That leads to mentoring programs. That means community engagement programs. Um, I'm already connecting to people like Dr. Compton, who's the associate, um, associate, I forget titles, but I know it's associate dean for community engagement. And then I've met, well, I'll be meeting soon with the VP of community engagement for the entire university, university? Okay. Dr. Pratic. Yes. Like I want 
I want to see what's going on with our community engagement programs, and I want to see how we can make faculty connect to that, especially black and, black and brown faculty, because if we can really connect to people, oh, yeah. opportunities, because people, here's some, here's some honest stuff. You go to a place, you're all by yourself, you're single, you're probably in your 30s, you're thinking about marriage, you're right. thinking about your life. Yep. You're not only thinking about your next grant. Your research, <laughs> yeah. Research. Um, so both of those things matter. So you want to connect. You want to find a church that matches you. You need to have something that connects you to those opportunities. We all need to feel a sense of belonging, but it must be especially difficult if you're the only one and you're far away from your family. And maybe if you're single too, it even gets worse, right? You just keep magnifying the loneliness factor that might come there. And, and I, think, I think when you, when you talk about what can the School of Medicine do or what can the university do, uh, there are certain things that they can do, but there are certain things they can't. And so how do we facilitate making those things happen? Even if the school isn't providing, here's your church home, uh, right? <laughs> right. right? They, can't, they shouldn't do that, right? Yeah. It shouldn't be part of the equation. But, but if they had a, a, a group of people that they could come to who were men mentors, who were sponsors, who were coaches, who were able to guide and inform, or a place just to go talk. Yeah. Just to say, let me just, let me just tell you what's in my head right now because ain't nobody else understands me. I just gotta talk to somebody. Just to have somebody to talk to that could be a, a, a source of inspiration, wisdom, experience, somebody that knows the world that you've experienced. That, that would seem to me to be part of the equation that you'd have to develop here. And, and I, as you said, I suspect that the problems you're going to find here in this area are no different than anywhere else. It's going to be the same ones. There'll be Louisville versions of it, but it's going to be the same basic issues. And so... Let me, let me ask this question. Is there a place you're aware of where they do this very well? And if so, how do they do it? University of Purdue's Veterinary Medical College does a very good job of focusing on diversity and making sure that opportunities are there for faculty and students outside of, for faculty and students outside of academics. Mentoring, affinity groups, people they can connect to, um, even just social opportunities. Yeah. Clearly you're busy when you're a professional, <laughs> but if the opportunity is there, and especially if the opportunity is catered to someone of your identity group, right, your, yes. Um, yes. Your, your, your professional identity group, you're more likely to maybe connect, drop by here and there. I know something that's going on here. Dr. Compton, I think, is working with the alumni office with Nakia Strickland. And I think this was going on a little bit before COVID. They were doing these special like social happy hours specifically for alumni in the College of Medicine, from the College of Medicine, who were um, Black, Latino, Hispanic. So um, they were doing these alumni happy hours where they would invite the medical students, invite medical faculty. They only had a few going on before yeah, COVID. things changed. We've already been talking about bringing that back. But small opportunities like that can be the thing that connects people. Absolutely. And we just need more. I'm so glad that the dean and those that put this job description together have focused you that way because if we only focus at say the student level or only at the faculty level and miss that intermediate step you, you have failed to create the the pipeline that allows you to say to a new resident here's what we can do over the next three years or four years of your residency here's what we can do during your fellowship 
here's how it looks as we get you ready to be a faculty member here. You, we want you to stay in our system, and here's the path for that. We're going to make that easy to see. And otherwise, you have these standalone programs that just touch one area, and even if you did it extremely well, they might go somewhere else because there's not, there's not a future. There's not a, a way to see, well, where, where am I a year, two, five, ten years from now? And I think that's what our interim president certainly is, is talking about now because I think I mentioned this to you just uh, when we met just this past week uh, about uh, a new program that she's looking at to get funding for that deals with getting underrepresented minorities engaged in community-based research while they are in residency and fellowship training. And with the, with the plan that that's what they would do as faculty. And so they could want to come here potentially as residents because they know there's a six or an eight year or a 10 year plan for me. I just got to do my part and get into this thing. And, it, and they've greased this wheel for me and I'll be able to see what the future looks like. And so I, I think things like that are really just starting to happen where somebody's looking at it more broadly than just a medical student program or a resident program or a faculty program. I think we need to see this as a pipeline as opposed to standalone programs. You know, the analogy for us is like in, in congenital heart disease, some of those children develop heart failure to the point that they need a transplant. Well, we don't create just a transplant program, we create a heart failure program. So it takes them from infancy all the way to five years from now when they might need a transplant. And there's a program built around every stage of what they may need in terms of medical support, device support, ultimately culminating in transplant. And so they're thinking of it that way makes more sense for those patients. Thinking of it that way for underrepresented minorities who are entering at, at whatever level, medical school, residency, fellowship, or beyond, thinking of it as a pipeline, I think is the key to figuring out how to make this work. And so what I'd be curious about is, has anybody else created such a pipeline? And if so, what can we learn from them about how they did it? How did they, what did they learn in the process of doing it? Why is it successful? What did they try that didn't work before they ended up with this program? And I think that would be a worthwhile effort to go look for that. Because otherwise, I, I've got to believe somebody's done this and done it well. And you've already mentioned one program at Purdue that, that may be one to look at. So that might be a way to, to start to look at this and get a jump start on all of this. The pipeline's everything. And I was even thinking when you said that, it's even if my role didn't ask me to work with faculty and graduate medical education, I would have still tried to do it or would have sure. done it, right? Of course. Because you can't, you can't effectively fulfill my goal and hit my mission if you're not threading across. I think that's right. Collaboration is going to be wildly important. Um, and that's... That's one reason why I'm on tour now and meeting people, learning things and trying to see what is going on currently. In my past research, I've done, I've referred back a lot to this concept called stereotype threat. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, I got to hear Claude Steele talk about it once and he said, dealing with, I'm paraphrasing, of course he does it better than me. He said, imagine sitting down in your living room watching a TV show and you're just enjoying the TV show. Period. You know, and at the end of the TV show, you feel relaxed, you've enjoyed your laugh or your drama, whatever it is. Now, imagine a person who's sitting in the living room watching a TV show and they've been told, hey, there's a poisonous snake in here somewhere. They might bite you. Watch out. Oh. But enjoy your show. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, they leave, and you're just watching your show, but every five seconds you are waiting for something to happen. Where's that poisonous steak? How big is it? What color is it? Does it camouflage into the carpet? Like, you're worried about all these things. That, I thought, was an amazing illustration of stereotype threat because mm -hmm. as minoritized, underrepresented individuals, when we go into spaces where we know we haven't belonged historically, at least in the um, United States or Western society, and we hear people make comments and we know that there are biases, every time something could be happening, there's, we're potentially looking over our shoulder or right. wondering. And how much does that affect our, in the metaphor the, or, the, or the allegory, how much does that affect our ability to just enjoy the show? Right. Or just really learn what's going on in the documentary, whatever we're watching. We're affected by that, and that impacts the entire experience. And those are the kind of things that at least I hope that we're building awareness of for faculty, staff, leadership, even the students. Because a lot of times, students are feeling these and dealing with this, and they have no understanding because they never sat in the class and learned about stereotypes. Exactly. Right, right? They don't so. understand, or they don't understand how, you know, being one of a few in a group in a medical school and they're experiencing this situation and so think about their bandwidth their bandwidth for learning their bandwidth for being able to be um, productive during their program if they're constantly picking up their feet and looking over their shoulder waiting for that snake, waiting for that snake <laughs> because they know that snake's in the room somewhere because they've they've heard about it yep. or they've or they've been bitten before or they've been bitten absolutely that's a great illustration. It's easy to picture. I can imagine myself, I have tremendous fear of snakes. And so I can imagine for me, the boys and a snake in the room. I'm not even watching the show now, yeah. right? My bandwidth is entirely on where is he? Exactly. Right? And, and so we had a visitor to uh, the Celebration of Teaching and Learning a couple of years ago who had written a book about bandwidth and, and how to recover bandwidth. And um, we, uh, we have an understanding about that now that we didn't before. Uh, we created some modules um, in, in the, we could put them in the show notes maybe, yeah, for this, this podcast. Programmer Resource Center. Um, and so uh, we were really, it got me, it floored me because it's like I hadn't thought of it that way before. But your ability to learn when you've been looking over your shoulder or whatever it is, whatever behavior it is that you have to do to cope. You can't learn as effectively as the people who don't have those worries, whether they're financial worries, food worries, housing worries, whatever it is, or fitting in worries. Those things all take up space in your head. There isn't enough room left in your head for the stuff to come in and stick and for you to do what you're supposed to do, that is learn in this environment. And so I think we could put the link to the book and, and then yes. to, the, to the module that we have on this as a, as a corollary to this, because it, it is real. It was C. Everett Sheldon's book, That's Bandwidth right. Recovery. That's right. And, and I suspect it applies that the undergraduate, the medical student, the resident fellow, the faculty level, all the way up. Snake's always there. No matter what room you're in, no matter how big the room is in that you're in, um, I suspect there's always a snake or something like that that you're worried about. It's going to get you. Chris, you some of the language that you've used is minoritized, which yes. is like an which is an action. Yes. Will you tell yes. us? Will oh, you tell I the listeners that. a little bit about why you use that language? Yeah, I, I purposefully use minoritized. I noticed that not everyone's doing that, but I purposely use minoritized instead of minority because it's less of a label and more of an like you said verb or action. What's happening to the individual or the group as opposed to 
an identity that right. can't be removed, right? Um, you're a minority. Minority means like less. Yeah. <laughs> we, let's, let's, not, let's not keep that label, right? So it's language that matters and it's language that's developed over time. So Chris, your previous research focused on educational interventions that were designed to reach diverse learners, um, including minoritized students and underrepres- underrepresented students. How does that research background inform what you're going to do here? So one thing I think think about, so I've done some growth mindset work. Growth mindset is really called implicit theories of, intelligent by, of intelligence by Carol Dweck. Now, growth mindset is the opposite of a fixed mindset, which sits on a continuum. On the growth mindset, it really means that you have thoughts and the belief system that you can grow and your intelligence can grow. Anything mental can change. While on the other side, the fixed mindset means that you have a set idea of what your abilities are, what your what your mindset is, et cetera, right? Now, one of the interesting things about having growth and fixed mindset is we all have growth and fixed mindsets in different things. You can't just say, oh, I have a growth mindset all the time. <laughs> no, you don't. No. You're, yeah. you're just not aware that you don't. We all fall on the spectrum of different, con- d- different times for different domains uh, between growth and fixed. Because one of the whole concepts of diversity training is understanding that People are different and like, that's okay, Uh right? As opposed to a fixed idea that, oh, we're all different and we don't change. So Chris, podcasts, very passive. So we always try to ask our listeners uh, to do something active after they hear this podcast. So what would you challenge the listeners to do as a a next step or an action point after they hear you talk? Outside of the training that you might've had, outside of a conversation you might've had with your Latino buddy, what have you done with this information? Have you provided a resource? Have you written a check? Have you done some form of community service? Have you helped somebody? Have you purposefully and intentionally mentored someone? What have you done to actually put some action behind the belief system that you say you have? Ask yourself that honest question. What time, what energy, what actual support, what money, what resource, what anything have you put into it? And if you haven't, well, it starts today or tomorrow. Chris, thank you for coming to join us here on Faculty Feed. We've really enjoyed talking to you. I don't think this is your last podcast you're going to do with us. <laughs> thanks, Chris. So thanks again. Thanks, guys. I enjoyed it. If you want to up your game as a professional educator or to enhance your leadership skills in the academic setting, this is the place to be, as together we strive to make UofL a great place to learn, a great place to work, and a great place to invest. Join us next time for more, and come hungry.